I need to know everything Who in the what and the where I need everything Trust me, I hear what you're saying But I like it's new what you're telling me I'm curious, George, I hop in the Porsche There's five and a horse, I'm ready for war I'm coming for ghosts to turn to a ghost I need to know everything Now you be surprised at the info you get Just by letting them talk, so I'm letting them talk Gotta keep quiet, maneuver and signs Hello and welcome to JK Plus One Welcome back to JK Plus One I am not your host, PTF uh, PTF, I don't know, he's teaching school I don't know what he's doing, this guy He's got his beard and who knows, but uh, I am your host, Jonathan Kinchin, and I am uh, back on the planet Texas after a uh, very fun uh, trip and summer out in Saratoga, and uh, I ate Spring Street Deli probably 12 times. I ate Salevo. Honestly, someone asked me how many times I ate Salevo. I, I think it was probably 27, 28. It's, it's pretty close. Look. It, the place is awesome. The food is good. They got the outside vibe. Uh, they do a great job. Make you feel welcome. It's phenomenal. Anyway, so I, uh, yes, about 27, 28 times. How many times I ate at Salevo Spring Street Deli? Probably, you know, a handful of times. And then a couple of other places. But I'm back now and I'm eating fajitas as often as possible back in Texas because that was one thing I didn't do while I was in New York. I just don't, uh, look, if I'm offending you from your, and you're from New York, I'm sorry, but I don't trust Mexican food in New York. It's entirely too far, especially from a person who grew up where I grew up uh, right here, close to uh, the origination of that food. So, um, yeah, so look I, look, I was just busy this summer. It was just a nightmare, and I, I got things going on. I got six race days, five race days a week. It's just busy, and and uh, the last time you heard from us was uh, Bob Baffert, and that was a ton of fun, and we were very happy to have that. And then, you know, you got some little – I felt like, Jake, you know, the cart talk thing kind of filled in a little bit for the absence of JK plus one. You got a couple of minutes here and there, and those were a lot of fun. And uh, – and the whole time I was doing cart talk with Chad and Todd and, and everyone, my whole thought was, man, an angel. I, my thought was like, this is going to be, these are going to be some nice JK plus ones when I can get them to sit down for a couple of hours. And, and I got everyone to pretty much agree to it. So now I just got to find the time to make it work and, and uh, we can get in there and, and, and make those happen. So uh, once again, uh, we appreciate all the support for in the money and, and all the shows we've got going on and, and, uh, and then also, you know, I want to thank you guys for supporting the show, uh, the Fox show too. That's been great. Um, seeing some of the nice feedback and, and, uh, and that's been great. So I am not a hundred percent committing that I'm back every week, but I'm like soft committing that I'm back every week. It's like a show bet. I wouldn't bet to win that I'll be back next Tuesday, Wednesday, Monday, but I would bet to show that I'll be back Tuesday, Wednesday. Uh, of next week. So, um, nothing's really going to change. I'm excited about our guests this week, but before we get to that, I want to talk a little bit about uh, a new partner that we have at, uh, in the money media and JK plus one, and that's our friends at Mill Ridge farm. Um, you know, obviously Oscar performance, uh, stands at Mill Ridge farm and, uh, I've only not liked Oscar performance once. And that's when he beat me in the uh, the juvenile turf out at Santa Anita, but every, every outside of that, he <laughs> I've loved him, but just that one day he really he really uh, bummed me out. But uh, Millridge Farm, it's a thoroughbred nursery in Lexington, Kentucky. They've raised or sold 35 Grade One winners since 2000. 
Uh, one of my favorite things about them is they're passionate about this industry. They're passionate about connecting people and helping people enhance their experience in racing uh, from whatever aspect it is, tours or, or, or whatever it might be. Um, if you want to learn more about raising horses, breeding horses, mating horses, buying, selling, whatever it is, you can reach out to them online, in person, on Facebook, or wherever you uh, attempt to connect to people these days. Um, I, I just, I love their enthusiasm about the game and I encourage you to check them out, whether you're breeding, betting, riding, training, check out Mill Ridge Farm. And now, uh, I'm very excited about this, uh, this guest that we have this week for my, my first one back off of a hiatus. And it's, uh, a person that I'll, I'll share a story with, which is kind of cool, um, which uh, uh, my girlfriend is friends with Aaron McLaughlin, and, and so uh, Kieran McLaughlin's daughter, and there is a, a, can I get Jonathan's number, my dad, and, and Kieran sent me a message one time and just said like, hey, love you on the show, holler at me if you need anything, and I was thinking to myself like, dude, are you sure? Because you got you got Louis Saez now, and I'm going to blow you up when you're on these first time starters, and uh so we, we started texting back and forth a little bit, and I knew that I wanted to have him on because I think he's got such an interesting story. We have these trainers that a uh, majority of their time is spent here in the United States, and that time is, uh, you know, it's, it's very interesting. We've heard great stories from the trainers we've had, but I think Kieran's story is interesting because in the middle of it, he went to a foreign country and trained in a foreign country that and trained for the person who ruled that foreign country. And I've always found that to be very fascinating, very interesting. I feel like you can make a movie about that or like a docu-series or a, or like a, you know, or a, you know, like a show on HBO about how uh, this guy from Lexington, Kentucky moved to Dubai and trained horses for the ruler of Dubai and, and how all of that um, unfold. And, and I just thought it was very interesting and, and not to mention some of my favorite horses and some of my favorite races, obviously Kieran was involved with. And, and when I see those blue silks, um, you know, I obviously you think about Tom Albatrani and you think about, uh, Owen Hardy and you think about, you know, some of the Shadwell horses that are now with Chad and Todd. But the first thing you think about is Kieran. And, uh, I was really happy to have him on and to, to get him to tell some of those fun stories and, and uh, enough of me chatting. This is like my longest intro ever, but I feel like I had a lot of stuff to say because I've been gone. So, oh, also, I wanted to let you know there is a few times in this interview where it kind of drops for a second. It's never too tragic, just kind of annoying. Uh, it was the way we were doing the call this week, so bear with us on that. And uh, without any further ado, Kieran McLaughlin. Kieran, I appreciate you taking the time. I've, I've always looked forward to, to this opportunity to catch up. And this doesn't mean you're off the hook for cart talk next summer at Saratoga, but uh, I, I couldn't resist uh, getting you on here to tell some stories. Oh, great. I'm happy to do that. And I love to do the cart thing, too, at Saratoga because I was in the golf cart every morning up there this year. So, yes, great. I, I love telling stories and talking, so we'll have fun. You know, Kieran, there's there's one horse that that uh, that was really cool for me, a horse that I liked a lot. And since you know this is uh, JK plus one, I'm allowed to start with, with that one. The question I wanted to ask you first is: Did you know that Frosted was going to run the race that he ran in the Met Mile? No, um, we did not have. I uh, training horses and being around races all my life. 
I don't think anybody could anticipate a performance like that for any horse any day. That was unbelievable performance. And he trained at Green Tree all the time, right-handed, which was interesting. And that was one of the things that we loved about Green Tree. We had our own private track there. And he trained right-handed every day. And me and Trish were up there with him. And, and uh, my team of people did a great job with him. But no, coming out of Dubai, we were you know worried about how he was going to perform. So it was uh, an unbelievable, um, brilliant race. Now, did you... Um with with frosted was was you know was he the type of horse that you always felt like was going to be a a two-turn horse or do you, did you was he just so talented that you felt like you kind of had to go the route of uh, of the three-year-old races yeah we we started him at six furlongs or seven furlongs i think it was six furlongs at saratoga and i remember irad was working him and uh he was working him with a couple other horses. And then we got close to the race and his agent took off to ride for Chad Brown, which Chad at the time was just getting going, you know, pretty strong. But um, I don't recall exactly, was it Dylan Davis that rode him? Um, I'm not sure who rode him first a couple of times. Yeah, it was Rajiv, but, Rajiv and then Dylan and then Irad. Yeah, there you go. So, it was interesting how it all unfolded, but he was very talented. We liked him, and we certainly thought he wanted to go further. But the other thing is that a lot of people don't realize is he didn't run on Lasix the first two or three or four starts. And I did that often because the mock tombs were have to, and, and it was interesting because I don't think it meant anything to anybody other than it was a little bit of a negative to be in the starting gate with 10 other horses and you were the only one without Lasix, but he did run without Lasix the first few starts. And then once he went long, he broke his maiden, ran back in the Remsen, just missing and a really neat horse though. Great attitude and a great mind for a tap it, which they can be difficult. There's, there are a lot of uh, geldings out there by Tata because they're, they're difficult to train. And he was a pleasure to train and a beautiful horse. Now, um, I remember obviously, you know, he, he obviously got good, you know, got better as he got older. Um, but I will say that for a moment in the Belmont, it, it looked like he was going to make a menacing run. Did, were you confident at that point that you had a shot or, did you kind of always know American Pharaoh was traveling a little bit better and, and you had a feeling you were running for second or was there a part of the race that you thought, you know, you thought maybe he was going to pull it off? Yes. For about a 16th of a mile from the, maybe the quarter pole to the, to the eighth pole. So an eighth of a mile, we kind of got to standing up and thinking and calling on him. And then you look back out there and say, whoops, that horse is still going pretty easy. So yeah, for a few strides, I thought we had a chance and being that, you know, it's so hard to win the Triple Crown. I thought we had a chance, but it didn't work out. What about the Travers? Was that was that always the plan for Jose Lescano to be a little bit more aggressive and to kind of prompt uh, American Pharaoh, or was that kind of Jose, you know, doing his thing out there, or, or was that kind of the, the team's plan all along? All right, so that was a very difficult situation because Joel got dropped, got hurt 
like 45 minutes before the race before or two races before the Travers. And all of a sudden we didn't have a jockey and, and it was, wow, I'm on the phone with, with Jimmy Bell and back and forth and we got to do something here. And Les Cano had won on wedding toast before grade one. He had won grade ones for us and we thought he was the best available at that time, but we did not want to go. And we thought that, you know, we would be laying second, third, fourth. And, and Jose just got him going and, and it didn't go well. So, I mean, we, we ran well, but we set it up for keen ice and Dale Romans for sure. We did not intend to do that. Now, I've always thought one of the most interesting like uh, stories that if I ever got to sit down and talk with you that I've always wanted to know is, is you know, growing up in Lexington, Kentucky, and then, um, you know, having, you know, you know, we'll go through kind of your career trajectory or whatever, but then suddenly you get, you know, you get this opportunity to go to Dubai and, you know, you're a, a guy from Kentucky that ends up in the other side of the world in a completely different culture. How hard was it? From a, just from a cultural standpoint, to kind of just understand what you're supposed to do, not supposed to do, and to kind of how much of an adjustment was that for you when when you uh, got that job uh, over in Dubai? Well, it was very interesting how it came about. Um, <clears throat> I was having dinner with Helen Alexander from King Ranch at Ciro's in 1992, 1993, no, 1993, and. We, you know, we talked about she wanted me to keep an eye out for horses for the Derby for the mock tombs, and that's when I asked her, "What about being a trainer?" And she said, "Because I was Chris Antley's agent at the time," and I said, "I would love to be training horses for the mock tombs." And she said, "What about Dubai?" And I said, "Where the hell's Dubai?" And I said, "I would go to the North Pole for the mock tomb family." And so I came back to Garden City on Long Island and went to the library to look up Dubai because it wasn't Google then. I, I couldn't do it. So um, I had to look it up and, and I started reading about it. And, it. and it ended up being a great opportunity going over there. We went over there in November 1993. Now I I, uh, I don't know if you heard this yet, but I I did send uh, your daughter Erin a couple texts to to get me some ideas of some questions to ask and and uh, just some some stories to get you to tell. And one of the ones that she brought up was uh, the mosque prayer in the morning, the call to prayer, and and how that used to scare the kids and what you did to uh, to convince them everything was going to be okay. Yes, it was when I first went there. <clears throat> I stayed in the apartment the first year, and then we got a house the next year. And I didn't realize the mosque was right level with our bedrooms and her bedroom. And the mosque would go off at five in the morning, five ten. And luckily, Laddie, my wife, came up with a story that it was really one of the guys from the barn that the kids liked a lot. So we kind of told a little lie to get them to not be worried. But it was loud. And later, after a few years, they stopped that at you know making it out loud and being so loud they they quit doing that so it worked out well but that was a concern now, so you were in you know obviously you know dubai's not really you know the united uh, arab emirates is not the the oldest country in the world i mean they you know since around the, maybe the 70s <clears throat> so you've seen that kind of that city and that 
that country kind of grow and in, in, into what it is now? And what were like the early years like there? Was it obviously it's much different now, but uh, was it it wasn't all the glitz and glam at first, right? No, it was actually we were there was a two lane road, four lane road, the main road that is like 16 lanes now. And I remember Dr. Mike Hauser was from America who worked for Godolphin. And I asked him where I should get a house. And he told me just on the other side over here of this, these roads. And I said, well, there's no roads. It's we're sand and we have to drive through the desert. He said, it'll be, don't worry. It'll be all built up before you know it. And it was built up before we know it. And, and it was unbelievable. But I, we, we got a house like one mile from um, our training center in Jamira, close to the, the Burj Al Arab, actually. And uh, it was great watching the, the, the city grow. It was amazing that there was only like one tall building back then. And I remember like two or three years after we were there, I was telling my brother Neil to go to the racing office and pick up some, some papers. And he said, well, which building is it? And I said, the tall blue one. There's only a tall blue one. He said, there's five tall blue ones now. So it was funny how quick they were building things and, and how it was changing. But it was fabulous to be there watching it change. And uh, it was a great opportunity for me and my family. The uh, the second Dubai World Cup, do you do you remember anything specific about uh, about that one? I think it was in 97 that you ran fourth with Key of Luck. Do you remember anything particular about that race? Um, yes, it was an interesting story. Um, going into that year, um, going into the year before where um, Key of Luck in 1997, um, Simon Christopher was the guy who hired me for from Godolphin, and he told me that I needed to bring a top rider there for Key of Luck. So the year before, he ran in the duty free and won by 20 lengths. It was one of the most impressive performances ever, and it was he wasn't eligible to run in the World Cup that year. Cigar won it, and. Uh, the ne- we ran him 30 minutes before the World Cup in the duty-free. They thought they would have a lot of horses wanting to run in the World Cup, and it was supposed to be like an extra race for the horses. It was the same distance, a mile and a quarter on, on the dirt, and Key of Luck ran in it. And I remember asking for Jerry Bailey, and his agent told me he was riding for a Roger Atfield or somebody. So I called Ron Anderson and got Gary Stevens to ride him. And we ran 30 minutes before Cigar and ran faster than Cigar winning, and we won by 20 lengths. And the the next day, Sheikh Mohammed called me, and he says, he always says, where are you? And I said, I'm at the barn, sir. He says, come up to Goodolphin. And we were literally a quarter of a mile away. So I jumped in my truck, and I drove up. And all three brothers were standing there. Sheikh Maktoum from Gainsborough Farm, who owned Key of Luck, and Sheikh Hamdan Shadwell, and Sheikh Mohammed, Darling Goodolphin. All three brothers were standing there. And I got out of my car and went over and shook hands with them all. And, and Sheikh Mohammed said, My brother 
wants to know why you didn't run in the World Cup last night. And I said, well, sir, it's a good question. I received this horse January 18th or January, late January, and he had never run beyond seven furlongs, and the previous trainer didn't nominate him to the World Cup. It closed in December back then. And uh, he said, okay, and they understood, and they shook their head. And So he says, he wants to know how you think he would have done. And I said, well, I have a lot of respect for a cigar, and um, the, I'm drawing a blank on the horse. It was second, a Mandela's from California. Um, I said, but um, we would have definitely been one, two, three, but Cigar hardly ever loses, so I, it's hard to say we would have beat him. And they, they just said, okay. So then go to the next year, and I, we ran in the World Cup that year and finished fourth with a jockey, Carlos Aries, I think is who rode him. And Simon Christford said to me, you need to bring Gary Stevens or Jerry, but you need to bring a top rider here for this horse. We're trying to put Dubai on the world map and we want to bring the best jockeys that we can. And I said, well, we would have had to give him a lot of money to bring him over here for, they would have missed three or four days. And he looked at me and said, no problem. But I didn't do it because Carlos Aries was my stable rider that year. And he rode him and finished fourth. Now, is that the year that, that it was delayed? The running, like they had the helicopters out there because it rained. Like yes, it, yes, and that was that was very interesting. What happened that year is with the rain coming, it was it was unbelievable. And I remember walking out on the racetrack with Sheikh Mohammed and Doctor Michael Osborne was kind of in charge then, and he said, "You know, we can't run on this racetrack." And, I said, wow, you got TV people coming here. The world is waiting for us to run. And he looked at, you know, and he looked at me and said, I don't care about any of that. I want to be the best for the horses. And he said, we're just going to have to talk about changing it. So he called in all the trainers and uh, he said, I'm going to have a meeting with the, with the committee and we'll, we'll get back to you soon. So um, Richard Mandela, John Giles and a couple people were there said, who's the committee? And I said, it's him. I said, it's Jake Muhammad is the committee. It's his decision. So he pushed it back one week and we ran it a week later. Now, uh, you know, I, it's, it's interesting. I've always been interested in this idea. And so forgive me for, for acting like a little silly kid, but like, what was it like working for someone that's that's that powerful in their country where like it, it just it maybe i'm wrong but i just like i feel like i feel like i had the i forget this impression that like if 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 you were uh you know taking your wife out to dinner for um for your anniversary and and there was a traffic jam and you're gonna miss the reservation that like if you really wanted to pull out the the sheik you know the sheik mo card you could call him and he could like sort all that out am i <laughs> is is that really yeah, how it was know. when you were there well, it's funny. There's a couple of stories about that. And it's one of them was my, one of my key guys name is Art Magnuson. And he was my assistant for 20 years. And so when he got there, he had a little road rage and he flipped off a guy on the road and he, he got a ticket. The guy followed him and the police followed him to his apartments where we all live. And he gave him a citation 
the ticket and told him he had to go to court like three weeks later at six in the evening. So I went to Sheikh Mohammed bin Obeid, which was a cousin to Sheikh Mohammed. And I said, he was at my barn office. And I said, sir, what are they going to do to Artie with this ticket? He said, oh, he'll get fined 500 Durham or something. Don't worry. I said, okay. So I said, Artie, call me after you go in front of the judge and tell me what's happening. So he uh, he, he called me and he said, Karen, they shaved my head, put me in an orange jumpsuit and gave me 30 days in jail. And I said, what? And he said, yeah, that's I'm here. And I said, okay, well, I better go talk to the boss. So I reached out to Sheikh Mohammed and I told him, I said, sir, I know you write the rules and you're the ruler of the country. And he was basically second in charge then. His oldest brother was in charge. But I said, I'm sorry, one of my key guys, he's in jail. I need to get him out. He flipped off somebody on the road and he, he laughed. I'm sorry, in New York, we do that all the time, flip people off. So he he got out. He had to stay like 24 hours in jail. We got him out. But uh, um, I never really, you know, it was great to work with him and see him. And back then, I saw Sheikh Mohammed every day because he was riding endurance horses, and, and it was fun. They're really good people to work for, and it was an honor to be part of, you know, Goodolf and Shadwell and, and work in Dubai and work with them. They're great people. Aaron also said that uh, one time you were over there, you were you guys were riding camels, or you were riding a camel. Someone was riding a camel. What, what was that like? So I was used to golf quite a bit before I had MS, and and this uh, I was looking forward to the World Cup or the you know the race, uh, um, the the golf outing before before safety by race and so he called me and he said where are you and i said i'm at the barn he says come up to good office and i have my golf clubs in my car and i drove up there and there were like 30 range rovers and we were going for a camel ride so i had to cancel my golf outing that day and we went out on the uh, went out for like an hour and a half on the camels and and sometime Bill Mott about it because he was there and Bill, you know, he exercised horses and he was great. I got on the camel and they kind of, you know, he ended up grabbing me and tying me to his camel. And I, so I was just behind him. But Bill Mott was actually riding the camel by himself and guiding him around and doing a great job. But we were on the camel for over an hour to two hours and only about 10 of us lasted out of 40. People were falling off. John Gosson fell off. Um, they had helicopters following us. And uh, after we got off, my my butt was bleeding from being on the camel. And my pants were bloody. And, and they all started laughing and looking at me. And, and Bill Mott said his butt was real sore and blistered, too, from being on a camel for that long. But it was things that you did. It was fun. What was in your decision to, you know, eventually come back full time? Was it, uh, was it a hard decision? Was it something you kind of always knew you were going to do? You were going to go there for a little while. What was in that decision to come back full time? It was a very difficult decision because 
we lived great there. We had a nice house, a, a Philippine maid that, that cooked for us and looked after things. And we had a great life there. And it was very difficult to think about leaving. And uh, my wife and I decided that we, you know, my first job in life is to be a parent. And I thought it was best for our children to come back to America because Aaron was going to middle school and Letty basically was homeschooling her and they were going to the American school in Dubai, but they started school in New York and then they ended school in New York and it was just really hard. So we decided that we needed to come back to America to raise them and put them in high school properly and go to college because Dubai was a little bit of a, a fantasy world, a Disney world atmosphere with maids. And you couldn't teach your children to go mow grass and earn a living or deliver newspapers because the labor force there was so cheap. And so many people were doing the job working at McDonald's for next to nothing. So it was a tough decision, but it was the correct decision as both kids are doing very well today. And we did very well. We were I was afraid that they might not support me as much. And we came back in 2003 and uh, it worked out great with Jazzle and Invasor and all the rest of the horses. They, they sponsored me or supported me very well in America. Were you, were you nervous about that phone call? I mean, you know, I've, I've had a, you know, in my previous job, I've had a, just a boss that was, just, you know, I respected so much. He was kind of tough. And I remember when I was like leaving, I was like the most nerve wracking thing to make that phone call. And, and he's not the ruler of any countries. So how was that phone call yeah. or that meeting? Were you nervous about letting him know that you were ready to come back? And were you expecting him to, yes. to, uh, to kind of say, no, I, you know, I think, I think I'd rather you stay here for a little while. How, what were you expecting when that yeah. happened? I flew to London to do it. But so you're right. I was nervous and I, out of respect for them. I ended up going to Sheikh Hamdan from Shadwell because he kind of, I was real close with him, closer with him than Sheikh Mohammed. So I flew to London and talked to Sheikh Hamdan about it. And it was, I was nervous and it was very tough to do it, but it, it worked out great. And, and like I said, maybe that helped that I flew there to tell them that they continued to support me. You mentioned Invisor, uh, obviously, you know, one of the most important horses in your career. Um, what was the story on, on how Invisor came about? A very interesting story. Um, a fella called Hassan was um, a trainer of endurance horses for Sheikh Hamdan in Dubai, and they were really into endurance horses, the Maktoum family. And uh, so he flew to Argentina to look at horses, endurance horses in Uruguay. I'm not sure exactly where he was, but the people there told him that you got to see our thoroughbred. We have a, a great horse that won the triple crown. So he was there to buy endurance horses and ended up paying a million dollars for Invasor. And um, so he came to, to Florida as a four-year-old and, he was allowed to run in Dubai against three-year-olds, but he had to carry extra weight because he was Southern Hemisphere. So when we got him, we we were training him, and he was he had a little bit of an issue with a hind ankle. And I asked Rick Nichols, I said, "Did you all X-ray his right hind ankle?" I said, "No, no." I said, "In the 
bat, batting of the horse. I said, he has a funny looking ankle. And we took a picture of it. And he had the top of his sesamoid had been operated on and taken off a little piece of it. But it was okay. Um, he was sound on it, but just looked ugly and looked like something had been done to it. So we didn't know where we stood. You never know coming from another country how they stack up. So we started working him with decent horses, and he worked well. But one vet came up to me and said, you know, he might have been beating horses that were worth 10000 down there. And I looked at him and said, oh, great, that's good for my confidence. And he said, I'm telling you, they're just not very good horses there. Wow. So the first race we took him, we flew him back to Dubai to run in the UAE Derby. And uh, he finished fourth, third, fourth, fifth. And Richard Hills rode him. And we kind of really didn't know where we were at. And uh, he said, oh, he's, he, he, he should be okay, a useful horse, if you leave him here for next season. And luckily, we didn't do that. And we brought him back. And uh, his first race, I have to give Rick Nichols credit. We were going to run in a lesser race, a hundred thousand dollar stake on on Pimlico weekend. And uh, and Rick Nichols, I called him and said they only have like five in the Pimlico special, and they're asking us to run there instead of the the hundred thousand on the undercard. And he said, why not? Let's run and find out if he's how good he is. And I said, okay. So we put him in there right out of Dubai. I mean, he hadn't been back that long. And we ended up with Ramon Dominguez. And he won the race. Ramon Dominguez dropped his reign at about the 316th pole and picked it back up and came on. I didn't think he was going to win. He won very nicely. And being that I'm a jocks agent now, I can tell this story. It's a funny story. After that race, okay where are we gonna go next and it was gonna be july 1st in the suburban so i told steve rushing had ramon dominguez's book and i told steve they were in maryland and i said steve i don't like to change jockeys and we're gonna point for the july 1st suburban and we would like ramon to ride him back he said okay great no problem thank you on june about june 12th to 15th he called me and says that man so what's that he said um i ride a lot for grand motion and he's sending sweet roberta or some philly to the hollywood oaks on july 1st and you need a rider in the suburban i said okay all right no problem uh, we'll work it out thanks and good luck i understand grand motion is important to go to california so i hung up with him and i called rick nichols and I said, Rick, we need a jockey, and there's going to be plenty of people open, but I just wanted to talk to you about it. And he said, well, why don't we put Fernando Hara? He just won the Belmont on Jazzle. Why don't we put him on in before? And I said, we can do that. I said, you know, it's these are big races we're going to. He's an 18-year-old kid. That's okay. That's okay. Put him on. So that's how Fernando got on in the soil. Oh, man. Uh, you, so I, I have a bone I have to pick with you. At least Aaron wanted me to pick one with you uh, about the Pimlico special because apparently <laughs> <laughs> apparently, you told them that you didn't think you were going to win, so they didn't come to the race, and they were, they said they were pretty mad at you. 
Yes, correct. I, I had no idea. I really didn't because, you know, his race in Dubai wasn't that great. And I thought we were in tough and they, I think they were off shopping or eating or doing something when we won the race. And, and, uh, yeah, they weren't too happy about that, but it worked out well. He didn't lose again from that race. You mentioned, uh, Fernando Hara and that, that kind of helps me transition to this other idea of, of your new your new career now as as, a, as an agent, or maybe your old career back to your to your new career now as an agent for Luis Saez. But I just found it kind of interesting that you really gave a lot of young riders opportunities. You know, Fernando Hara with with the with Jazzle and Rajiv with Little Bell with his first Grade One win. Irad, funny enough, he's you know arguably the best rider in the world now, and and and, and you gave him his first grade one win with questing and Alan Garcia and, and, and even Rosie, you gave Rosie an opportunity at Lone Star. Um, what, yeah. is there a reason that you feel like that happened or is it just, is it just luck that, that you, uh, kind of helped these, uh, these young riders? Well, it was a, probably a little bit of both. It was, you know, I wasn't going to take Irad off of questing. He got lucky to start with her. And I remember a couple of agents coming to me and saying, you know, he's, he's not, qualified to be riding these grade ones we're open we would like to ride the the big races for you and i said how's he ever going to win a grade one if he doesn't get the opportunity to ride a good horse in a grade one and that was kind of the same with all of them and and it worked out well alan jerkins used to do it and he would use you know a lot of different named and lesser named jockeys and and i just happened to get lucky and have four of them win their first grade ones with me but it was nice to be able to do it for their careers. What's the difference now as Louis' agent from back in, you know, whatever, 92 or 93 when you were with Chris Antley? I mean, how did you have to adjust quite a bit? Was just everything done differently or is it just pretty much the same thing like riding a bike? You just kind of, uh, you know, just kind of picked it up as you went along. It's, it's a lot different now, but similar to you. You want to ride for people. I feel like, you know, you have your key supporters and your key people that you want to ride for, and you don't even ask the horse's name. You kind of know the horses usually. But um, the big difference is thorough manager nowadays. Um, it's uh, it's incredible, the, um, the, the information that is there. So, um, it, it's... So... Um, it's, you can look up horses and charts and races and jockeys. And so we, uh, that makes it a lot easier. So when they put up an extra, never one, three lifetime, seven, eights on the dirt, you can go back and look that at that race, you know, for the last year or last 45 days or last, last 90 days, whatever it is that you want to do. And it makes it a lot easier. So like if IRAD gets days, you can go back and sort, you know, and look at his horses that he rode and go and ask trainers to pick up some of his business. So that's different. We didn't have that back when I was Chris Antley's agent. Um, we had to kind of know by memory what was going on and, and, and do things a little different. But nowadays with this thorough manager, and most agents use it, it's great information. How did you how did you handle getting spun as a trainer and how do you handle spinning as an agent? That's a very good question. I was probably one of the easiest to spin. I didn't mind. I again, felt like 
okay, if you want to go ride that other horse, no problem. I'll get another rider. It hurt a few times with certain owners would get a little upset, but um, it's, it, it did. I was the easiest of trainers to spin, I have to say. But um, nowadays, it's tough to spin. I, I try not to do it, but you have to do it because things change. And a race didn't go, and they brought it back, and you gave a call to the, to the other guy. So it's tough to, to spin people but you have to do it and if you you know not doing it then you're not doing your job now you um you you started your career um i think i think i read hot walking but then your first real kind of big gig was was working with with wayne and i know uh i've always been just so impressed with that coaching tree and, and the coaching tree that's that we still see. I, I, I like that, you know, with the Packers back in the day with, you know, Mike McCarthy and, and, uh, and John Gruden. And, and I love, I love that story with how all of you guys, you Todd, Mike maker, uh, Dallas all worked with Wayne. And then you guys kind of have your own coaching tree as well. Todd with, with, uh, Michael McCarthy and, and, and so on, and George Weaver, and so on and so forth, and, and George with, with Wayne as well. What, what was, obviously that experience was extremely um, important to you. What, what was it about that time that you think uh, impacted your career the most? I was just so lucky to, to get, to be hired on, you know, by Wayne, and I was young at the time, so he came into Arlington Park, and he asked to come into the nicest barn, and I was assistant to Tim Muckler, and we had a really nice barn. We didn't have the best horses, but we had a really nice barn. And he shipped in to that barn in uh, 1984. And I met Wayne, and um, he brought in Tiltalating first and then Lucky, Lucky, Lucky. And he came there twice. So... I met him and talked to him and basically begged him for a job if anything came up because Wayne was Wayne and he was big then. So he hired me in 1985 and I drove from Miami to Los Angeles to go to work for him. And I, and he told me to, to, to be at the barn. No, we met at the donut shop and he said, I'll meet you at the donut shop at 4 a.m. And it was close to Santa Anita. So I got there at 345 because I didn't want to be late. And I said, what the hell do you do at four in the morning? It's pitch black. And I hadn't, I had worked on a racetrack for a long time, but nobody started at four o'clock that I worked for. So I got to the donut shop at 345 and he was there and he was having his donut and cup of coffee and I grabbed my stuff and then followed him into the track at four o'clock. And he was such a perfectionist. He wanted to do the set list that morning and not have to white out or change anything. And it was the biggest break in the industry for me going to work for him then. And his son, Jeff was there at Santa Anita. So I was like a foreman under Wayne and Jeff and it was unbelievable the, the quality of horses he had and everything that I did after that as a trainer was mainly from Wayne's, you know, tutelage and feed program and training program. We adjusted a little bit of, um, of things and 
the, obviously to keep up with the times you had to use Gastrogar and do a little vet work and be on top of things. But Wayne was brilliant horseman and a great teacher and coached me and coached us all so well. So it was a, you know, big break for me at 23, 24 years old. I was 24 years old. So, you know, I was pretty young and uh, it was just great experience. Sorry, I got stuck on mute there. Um, now, with who who are you working with directly? I mean, I know that those guys all, you know, I know Todd was there and so on and so forth. But that time you were with Wayne, you know, who who are you working with directly that's still active in the game now? Um, Todd, I like to say that Todd was my foreman as I was an assistant back here in New York. And my wife such a good racetrack wife that she actually had Aaron on a Tuesday morning, which is the only dark day back then uh, was Tuesday, Monday or Tuesday, I guess. But she gave birth to Aaron at four thirty-three in the morning on a Tuesday. And I called the barn because it was before cell phones and Todd answered the phone. And I said, Todd, we're at the hospital. Laddie just had a, a, our baby girl and all is well. And I'm going to go home and sleep. It, it was 4.30 when she had the baby. So I called him like at 4.45 or 5 o'clock. And he said, well, what do you want me to do with the horses? And I said, I don't care what you do with the horses. I'm going home and going to sleep. You do whatever you got to do. And I think I left them in good hands back in the day, thinking about that Todd was my foreman. <laughs> did Todd mess something up or did he get it together? <laughs> No, he got it done well. And so then Mark Hennig is my brother-in-law. He's my wife's brother. And so we've always, you know, been together and worked, you know, he worked for Wayne in California and then came back East and Dallas Stewart. I worked with some Randy Bradshaw. He's in Ocala now. And, uh, Mike Maker, I didn't ever work for, but I like riding for him now. <laughs> it helps. Now, in, um, in, in all of your time working with Wayne, you're obviously around a lot of really good horses. What, what are some of the horses that really stand out that, uh, that you were around when, when, you, were, when you were working with, the, with Wayne uh, during that time? I was at Monmouth Park in the summer, five summers or six summers that, when I was with him. And I remember we had a great situation. Um, a lot of people would say Wayne is part of the reason that these um, – trainers have super trainers have 200 horses and and it was his start to having satellite divisions but he always had 40 at each different track he never had 200 at saratoga or 100 even we had 40 at Monmouth, 40 at belmont and 40 at saratoga in the off season and maybe 40 at churchill but i was at Monmouth, and i had a horse that needed to be stopped on for her shins and I sent her to Randy Bradshaw to Saratoga and he said, I'll send you one back. He said, I have a New Jersey bred filly here. That's getting close to racing. I'll send her to you down there since she's a Jersey bred and that was open mind. And so we had her as a two year old. She ended up winning the breeders cup being two year old champion and three year old champion. And so she was a great filly to be around and she was, you know, a star. And then Dinah Former 
we had at Monmouth too, and then on to New York in the winter. And he was a obviously a great stallion, but a real, real difficult horse to train. He was nasty and bite and run off and was difficult, but it was a great horse to be around. So those were a couple of my favorites. And then the, the horses that you trained, obviously, you know, the, the big ones stick out, Invisor and, and, and uh, you know, Questing and Frosted and, and so on and so forth. What, which, which are some of the other ones, maybe the, the kind of underappreciated horses that you trained throughout your career that uh, were pretty special to you as well? Well, I have one that, that Wayne actually trained that I want to tell the story because you'll appreciate this. So I was getting commissions when we won races and Wayne was great to work for. He was fabulous to work for. And it was about the third year at mom at park. And I realized I got a special two-year-old and I'm going to send him to Belmont. And when he wins, I'm going to get like $30 or, you know, $50 commission. I said, I'm going to keep this one in my back pocket. So I started working him and training him and I switched his name and we had a really good horse called Czar baby that was owned by Peter Brandt and he was injured. So this horse looked very similar to him, big chestnut. And he looked a lot like him. So the clockers at Monmouth, I would go up and we would work, you know, 15 or 20 horses sometimes in a day. So I went up to the clocker and I said, listen, I said, can we go over the horses that work today and make sure we didn't miss any? Is that Pulled up the chart. I said, hey, you missed one. Who's that? I said, Richard R. He said, what'd he do? I said, he went five eights and 103. And he said, okay. So he wrote down five eights and 103. And Czar Baby was what I told him the horse was that worked. And Czar Baby was... 47 and 2, 59 and 4. So Jeff Lucas, who was very sharp and on top of everything, hey, Karen, what is Czar Baby doing on the work tab? And he's not even training. I said, I don't know. They, they're making a mistake. They must think it's somebody else. Or He said, well, can you talk to the clocker and tell him to, to, to change this up? It doesn't look good. Yeah, yeah, I'll talk to the, to the clocker. So each week that Richard R. worked and was doing better and better, I came home and told my wife, I said, I'm putting 200 in this drawer. We're going to bet on a horse. Put 200 more in the drawer, 200 more. So I had about $2,000. And we were going to win a race at Saratoga, which ran at Marmot. So Jeff calls me about two weeks three weeks before we were planning on running and he said, Hey, Richard R he's working well and doing well. And you said he can win for maiden 75. He said, they're looking to split the maiden special. I want to put him in today. I said, no, please don't. I said, if you want to be leading trainer, he'll win for the 75, but you know, maiden special is a lot tougher and we might not be able to beat the Shug McGahees and other Mac Millers and everybody. Let's point for the maiden 75. He said, well, I'll let you know. So now I'm fretting and fretting. I can't tell him what I've been doing. So I called the racing office. 
I said, hey, did you split the two-year-old race? I said, no, we didn't. We only got 12 in it. We didn't split. I said, great. So two weeks later, made in 75, Richard R. Zanners. And had I been able to tell Jeff more, maybe we could have put a lesser rider on it. But I couldn't say too much. So he entered him with Angel Cordero. And back then told my in-laws to meet me at aqueduct we drove to aqueduct because i didn't want to lose the five percent at an otb shop so i drove from mama's with my wife and a few of us that were on my team and met my in-laws at aqueduct and we went up and we bet and back then there was only a late pick three might even know just a late double late double and uh, exacta and a trifecta and it was the last race and we cashed the horse one by 10 lengths and paid 880 or something. But the exacta was huge and the trifecta was huge. And we had to even sign on the trifecta. We made like $20,000 gambling. So it was, it was fun. And, and he was a New York bred, but he ended up winning the Bay Shore the next year. So he was very talented, but I pulled it off without any you know, real issues. Luckily, they didn't claim it. I knew you would like that. Oh, I love those stories. I love those stories. Those are my favorite. Um, I've heard you're infamous at the at the poker table. Aren't you like the you like a little poker, huh? Yes, I like to play it, but I, I have to be honest. My son's better poker player than me, but I do enjoy it, and I like to play. And uh, you know, nowadays I don't have as much time. This agent takes a lot of time, but I do enjoy poker and I played in the main event a couple of times just to do it, but I didn't cash. Um, I made it to day two every time, but I didn't cash in it, but I do enjoy poker. When you go to Vegas, is that, are you, what kind of Vegas guy are you? A Vegas guy that uh, just hangs out uh, in the poker room or what other games do you, uh, do you play when you're out in Vegas? Yeah, in Vegas, I, you know, I went only for the main event a couple of times, but I like all all of it, shooting craps and playing blackjack and playing poker too. Did you uh now obviously this was a, that was a, you know, kind of a special story, but did did you bet your horses quite often or did you not usually did you try to, you know, did you figure like you kind of already had enough you already you already had enough down with uh with the the interest as a trainer? Yeah, you know, only time I really would bet is when you felt like you had an edge and that you thought the horse was doing better than than the odds were going to say. And so, yes, we we often bet um, not a lot of money. I'd never bet $2,000 again on a horse, but, um, you know, we bet 50 and 50 or, you know, bet a pick six, pick three, pick fours. And and I enjoy betting it at, you know – I still bet some, you know, not that much, but a little bit. Um, you mentioned Aqueduct. Uh, Aaron told a funny story about one day you were getting gas at Aqueduct. Do you remember that story? Yes. I've had a couple interesting stories about Aqueduct. That day when we were cashing our all of our money, there was nobody there. It was the last race at Aqueduct, I mean, at Saratoga. We were just at Aqueduct betting. And I looked around, and 
and there were, you know, a few guys that were not the classiest guys looking around. I said, oh, shit, we've been putting all this money in a lot of these purses in our pockets, and people are watching us. So I called a Pinkerton over, and I said, hey, can you walk us to our car? Because there's nobody there. And he said, yeah, sure. And I gave him $200. And I said, here, walk us out to the car. We went down the elevator and walked outside to the parking lot, and he pulled his gun out. And I thought, he's going to hold us up. But he was just a power moment. He put his gun and kind of and led us to our car with his gun out. And I was scared he was going to turn the gun on us and say, hey, give me your money. But it, it didn't happen. And the, the taxi story is I drove a white Lincoln and a white Cadillac. But the white Lincoln, I was at aqueduct and i was getting gas and somebody asked me to give a ride to the airport and they thought i was a taxi that happened more than once because ollie's taxi service on long island uses white lincoln's just like i drove so a couple of times i thought i was won a race and was all high and mighty and then a guy asked me to give him a ride to the airport it brings you back down to earth you uh you you know you won a lot of big races and obviously that one that that uh, you know kind of is always out there for horsemen and riders and everyone and owners is the is the Kentucky Derby and you were oh so close and it wasn't with a favorite <laughs> it was with the horse that was seventy one to one did you think closing argument was going to run that well in the two thousand five Derby no I, again you don't anticipate running that well at seventy to one. But what bothered me about it was that Coolmore, I think, had a rabbit in the race, and the rabbit was only 60 to 1, and we were 73 to 1. People actually bet on the rabbit more than they bet on our horse. <laughs> but um, it was crazy to think that we almost won the Kentucky Derby, and we got to the lead at the eighth pole, and usually if you're there, you win. But Giacomo got by us with Mike Smith very late, and a Fleet Alex was probably the best horse. He had troubles and finished third, but it was exciting. We almost won the Derby. We didn't quite get there, but it was a great run, and then we had several fourths after that. Did you uh, – sure, you guys, guys had to have money across the board on that one, right? No, we didn't really. We I don't remember exactly what we did, but that wasn't a – a, a gambling situation we should have bet um on him but my kentucky derby betting story is working for wayne when winning colors won like the san anita oaks he said he was going to run her back in the san anita derby so i didn't know whatever i just heard that he was going to run the san anita derby and was thinking about the kentucky derby so before everybody knew, we had someone go to Vegas and bet on her in the Kentucky Derby in the future book, and we sent $2,000 over there. It was some of us assistant trainers and Jeff Lucas, and, and uh, it was actually his friend or cousin that bet. And he went there to bet the 2000 She was 30 to 1, and the, the place gave him 30 to 1 for 1,000, and then they dropped her odds right there to 20 to 1. So we got 25 to 1, and uh, I had 200 to win on her. But it was fun to win that day and have a future bet like that. 
uh, Tamra Cruz is a horse that, that won the dirt mile. I was there that day that he won. Did, did you like him in that spot or were you just kind of, you just, you know, you couldn't really go along with him. You thought maybe the sprint was a little too short and, and that just kind of where, where you landed with him. Yeah, we liked him quite a bit, but you know, Santa Anita's tough and, and Mike rode him very well, gave up a lot of ground, but Mike knew what he was doing. And, and, uh, again, I'm not going to bet when you're running for that kind of money and your 10% are, are so large already, but he ran a big race, a huge race. And uh, we could have kept racing him after that. Cause that was the first time he had gone two turns. And I talked to Shadwell about, you know, I'd like to run back in the Pegasus or running some more races, but we weren't able to, we went ahead and retired him to stud after that. You've had some big days, obviously, but uh, a day that uh, Aaron thought probably stood out to you was in April of 2017 at Keeneland um, on on the first Lady Day. You guys won four races at your, at your kind of your home racetrack: um, Dickinson, Watershed, Zanor, uh, and Tasteful. Uh, what was that day like? Unbelievable! It was just incredible to go back to Lexington and. Uh, you know, be there with family members and Aaron and to win four for Godolphin that I believe were all four homebreds and uh, to win big races and beat Lady Eli in the, in the first lady, you know, grade one, it was unbelievable day. And, and it's, it's hard to imagine winning four in one day, but for the same owner, same connections was crazy. Kieran, I want to talk a little bit more about Louis, but before we get there, I just want to talk about, uh, just because, you know, it's one of those situations where I think a lot of people in the game are, you know, don't fully understand um, just just how the the issues in New York with the Department of Labor and, and, and how complicated things were getting and expensive things were getting, but I just wanted, to, in a conversational way, I mean, I've seen you have quotes about it um in writing but i just wanted to kind of see what your thoughts were about that issue what the problem is in in kind of i know it wasn't a full part of the, of the decision but it was part of the decision and in, in moving to your new career of having louis book yes that's a good question so it's um it's very difficult and george weaver a friend of mine just went through it too and i feel bad because sometimes it reads like we're bad people and that we're not doing the right thing and that's the furthest thing from the truth. So over the years, the Department of Labor, uh, we we hired Mexicans through uh, H-2B visas. And they were the ones that wanted to come here and work. And, and uh, it worked out well. But it was just so expensive. And the rules kind of changed and the, 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 all the time. And it's hard to keep up with exactly what we were doing and why we were doing it and the lawyer i had made some mistakes and it cost me a lot of money but it it was weighing heavily on me late in my training career you know i had to take out loans to pay and to to get even with the um you know pay three hundred thousand dollars you just don't have it sitting around the bank so i had to reach out and get it in 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 a few different places but my help was very important to me and it was just strange the way it happened first they said we weren't we underpaid them but 
in our business, we don't have a door to lock the front door and say, okay, the door's open. Come on in, punch in at eight o'clock and, and, uh, and punch out at five o'clock. The barn is open and, um, we would ask them to punch in at four thirty. but some of the guys would come in at four o'clock and wanted to have their coffee, pull their straw down, hay down, get ready for the day. And that's what happened is the, the Department of Labor said that these guys said they've been here since four, but you don't start paying till 430. I said, well, I'm home sleeping at four. They're not supposed to start till 430 or five, whatever it was. And so after going back and forth and interviewing, they made me pay 20 minutes for three years for 50 people or something. And that was the $300,000. But my staff was great. And the, we had to run an ad in the paper that said what we paid and how we paid. And they said that had I said how well I paid in state checks, because we gave them 1% of the earnings, then Americans would have taken the job. And I said, the Americans don't want to take the job. I've tried. And then if you get good guys that come along, they end up being foremen or assistant trainers pretty soon. I've had several of those that we hired, and they were good guys. But it was just hard to get people to work. You know, we even gave a day off a week and afternoons off. So we weren't overdoing it, but we we took care of everybody very well. And so the state got me for over three hundred thousand, and then the feds came in, and they were trying to say, had I said that I was paying this well that I would have been able to get Americans to do the job. So now I'm getting in trouble for overpaying and I was already fine for underpayment. And I can say it now because um, it's over, but I even had um, probably one of the only trainers ever to offer 401k health insurance. And I did, but I couldn't say that when I'm getting fine and, and in trouble because they would have said, for sure I would have gotten America to do the job if you're given 401ks and health insurance. But it, it just was beating me up. It was just hard. I felt like I was working every day to break even at best because of all the requirements and the expenses. When we brought someone in on an H-2B visa, it, you had to pay for the visa which was $900. You had to pay for their airfare. You had to pay for their food to travel. And it just, you know, became, and everybody's still doing it today, but it's just very, very expensive to make ends meet and make it work. And I just felt like I couldn't keep adding on $10 a day per horse to the owners because it's just beating them up. So it worked out great that I was able to switch up and be a jocks agent. Now, I read somewhere that there was the, the, the biggest, um, one of the biggest issues is being classified as agricultural and we're not. Is that is that the case or and why would that change things? Yes, it, w- it would change things because we are agricultural and there's no question about we're taking care of live animals. And I had someone there 24-7. You have the day watchman, night watchman. Love day and fed and watched because some of them would try and commit suicide. But agricultural would have made it to before you have to pay overtime would be 60 hours a week. We're not trying to underpay, 
But to have a full-time staff keeping track of every minute, we got in trouble for rounding off to, to 15 minutes at a time or 10 minutes at a time. I don't know exactly what it was, but the Department of Labor didn't like that. I said, okay, we changed it. But the agricultural would have been 60-hour weeks, and the times wouldn't have been so difficult to pay when you shipped aqueduct at city limits and you had to pay more per hour than if you were running at Belmont. And it was really tricky to do everything proper. And agriculture would have been 60 hours a week, but without having to worry about every time they got on a van or went somewhere. And you're still paying well. We paid great. And people, you know, would weren't going to stay with us if we didn't pay well. And George Weaver, same thing. They've been with him for 15 years. If we weren't paying properly, they'd go to work for someone else across the street. No, I guess I'm just curious. Like, what did all this come from? Is this like a disgruntled worker complaining? Is this just them? You know, the the Department of Labor just like, you know, looking for a way to to kind of poke. I mean, I'm sure you guys all have your theories, but you know, where does this kind of thing come from? Or other, you know, is is or other industries dealing with the same issue as as far as the Department of Labor? What what brought this uh, about? Yeah, that's a good question. I think a combination of both. I think I had a disgruntled employee at some time might have contacted the Department of Labor. And yes, they were, you know, they were hard on other industries in New York. And uh, they, the delis and the diners and the pub pizzerias were having a lot of troubles too. But um, I'm not sure exactly um, what started it all, but this, this was the third time that I was investigated. The first time was um, I was fined, I think, $25,000 um, for different things. The next time I was fined $2,700 for, you know, okay, this happened and that happened. And little things like I say, we need a time clock because we used to all pay salaries. And then we got a time clock in 2012 and we were doing things right. But then they said I have to pay weekly instead of biweekly. Okay, that's easy enough. And so I'm not sure exactly if if the state thought that we were all, you know, bad guys and wanted to come over and, and rough us up. I was told the first time I went for a hearing on this last time that was so expensive, the guy told me the governor wanted to come into the racetrack and look at things and be a little tough on us because of the poor living conditions at the racetrack. And I told him, my people live in a brand new dorm at Green Tree and it's beautiful. And they're, they don't, they're not living poorly. And the trainers aren't responsible for that. The racetrack gives the housing. So that was the investigation on the backside. So now that that's um, behind you, you've you've transitioned to uh, a uh, the the you know I guess we mentioned earlier with Louis Saez and and obviously he had uh, man he just had like a heck of a meet at Saratoga and and even though he kind of got off to a not got off to a slow start he got off to a fast start but he missed those first couple of days when he was diagnosed with uh, with COVID and and then he came back and he just won races in bunches and I, and I don't think he was gonna. I don't think he was going to beat Irad, but I think he was going to be a lot closer in that conversation. It felt like the entire meet we were talking about Irad, Jose, and Joel, and I feel like if 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 he would have been there from the start, Louis would have 
would have been in that conversation. How much momentum do you think you lost with him being out those first, what, what was it, six race days? Yeah, six race days. We definitely lost a few winners, and it would have probably put us and uh, definitely, but I, I can't imagine doing any better than we did winning 45 races when we started six days late. It was like unbelievable how well things just they worked out. And, and, you know, I've been in the game a long time, and I'm being serious and honest about this. I didn't realize how great a jockey he was until I started watching him ride eight races a day, you know, because I, I rode him when I was training. But to watch him every day ride, it was incredible how talented he is and what a, um, a great jockey he is to break from the 10 hole and get to the two path into the first turn on the turf at Saratoga. It was like, wow. And he did it regularly. So it's a pleasure to work with him. He's a, he tries hard with all the horses and he never complains and he's a great kid, great family person, wife and three kids. And I picked him up at five fifteen this morning to head to California. And, you know, we luckily got back on maximum security and, uh, we have a huge weekend out there. I think there's 13 stakes and he rides in 12 or 13 of them in California. Do you, uh, not to put you on the spot, do you, who are some of the horses he's going to be riding? I mean, obviously entries will come out tomorrow. Who are some of the horses besides Max he'll be riding? He's going to, um, he's, he's on a horse in the, awesome, uh, the American Pharaoh for Baffert. That's a maiden, but uh, Spell, Spielberg. Spielberg, but yeah. Okay. He's, uh, that's for the, uh, for the uh, Starlight West uh, group that had Charlatan and Authentic and uh, and I'm um, forgetting another eight rings. So that's that's a, I'm sure that's a talented runner. Yes, and and then we we picked up a few other horses. Peter Miller, um, the the um, a really nice horse, CZ Rocket. Wow. He's a really he's a really nice sprinter. It's a win and you're in. So, you know, he he if we get lucky there, that would be nice. And then we we ride uh, a couple of we ride for uh, like uh, Richard Baltus in a couple of races, Peter Miller in quite a few races, and uh, um, Wesley Ward was supposed to ride. I'm not sure which one is running in the speakeasy stakes. We, that we enter Wednesday. So he has some very nice mounts and we hope we get lucky. Yeah, that's exciting. I've, I, um, you know, I, I've, it's look, no offense to our friends on the West coast, the riding colony there, but you know, just watching Saratoga day in and day out and seeing the, the depth of that colony with, you know, I mean, even if I start rambling off names, I'm going to forget somebody. I mean, with Louie and Irad and Jose yes. and, and Joel, and, and I've already forgot three other really good, you know, really good ones, Javier Johnny. and Johnny. Exactly. Yeah. I forgot the Hall yeah. of Famer. Um, yeah. I just feel like when, when, when the riders from the East Coast go out there, it's like they just have an edge. They're just, they're, they've been banging heads with the best every day at Saratoga on the best horses and and um and I, you know I'm I'm looking forward to seeing Louie go out there and ride and and I think Louie really fits Bob's horses too which is which is interesting uh, the with the relationship with how kind of maximum security and Louie have kind of 
you know, come to Bob. And I, I think that, that, uh, that those horses, you know, his horses are, are forward. They're ridden aggressively. They're fast. And that's what Louie does so well. It's, it's one thing that we know, and I've talked about it on the show all the time with Louie is you don't have to worry about intent when you see a horse who has speed. He's never going to grab them. He's always going to put right. them in the race and get their position moving forward. And, and do, do you think that that's just part of his talent or do you think it's part of his confidence or where do you think that comes from with Louie? Yeah, I know it's always been him. And, and then on the other hand, he can lay fourth or 10th if he, if it calls for that, but he loves to warm him up good and put him in the game. And, you know, again, I, I think it's helpful because you stay out of trouble and working for Wayne all those years, Wayne would have loved to have Luis on everything because Wayne always said, bounce away and put him in the game. And he always wanted him forwardly placed. So it's not that he has to do that, but he does that most of the time and it works out well for him and we stay out of trouble. And, you know, it's just, uh, he, he does a great job getting him out of the gate and getting him in the game. Do you give did you give a lot of instructions when you were uh, when you were uh, a trainer or did you just kind of leg them up and, and let them do their thing? You know what I think a lot of trainers I was again I tried to get the best jockey and I didn't give a lot of instructions but what you do is hey he might be a little late switching leads he might not switch leads um, he likes to be on the outside instead of the inside this looks like the pace of the race or there's no pace in the race, let's go. So you would say different things, but not necessarily lay second or go the lead or be last. It was more, you know, some things that might help the jockey out, I would tell him. In, uh, you know, obviously Saratoga is uh, a special place, and, and uh, I think you, you won the title in 2008 at Saratoga? Yes. And then, you know, you've won a couple titles in Dubai. Which one of those kind of training titles really sticks out to you the most of, of being, you know, just kind of the one, you know, the, the you'd put on your mantle? Uh, which one is, is, is uh, kind of special to you? Saratoga, for sure. And uh, it was, uh, when you look back, I think um, nowadays it takes two or three times as many wins as we had then, the 17 or 18 wins. But it just worked out. That, that was the year and it worked out great so definitely um being leading trainer saratoga is special what was uh what was behind the win there i mean it feels like it feels like um you know like this year the story obviously i think that that chad was probably affected a little bit with some of the races that were taken off and that really kind of played into todd's hands but then also todd really kind of uh, kind of went not away from what he had done in the past, but he also was running horses in, in, in some lower level spots and in, in being more aggressive, almost as if he wanted uh, that outcome. What, what was, what was kind of behind your momentum in 2008 of getting that, uh, that training title? Do you, do you remember any, any moments that kind of really helped you get it over the top? Well, yes, back in that day and back when, when I was trained, I feel like at Saratoga, the one big plus was the racing office putting out the condition book a little bit earlier than every meet because it was Saratoga for the people in Kentucky and other places to know what races were going to write. And I felt like the races were going to go and you knew they were going to go. You didn't have to worry about extra eight going. So it helped us point for race 
for the horses. And we always started off really well at Saratoga, the first book, because we were pointing for those races for a month. And I think that that was a big help for us. Karen, you, you mentioned Green Tree. I've actually never, I mean, I've driven by it. Um, tell me a little bit about that facility. I, I think it's, it's interesting. Saratoga is always so, so spread out and there's the, you know, there's the Clare court and there's the, there's the main, there's the Oklahoma and, and tell me, and you know, there's the harness situation. Tell me a little bit about Green Tree. It's a fabulous place. It's a, um, it was a real luxury item to be able to train there. It used to be 46 stalls. And once Sheikh Mohammed bought it, you know, eight years ago, 10 years ago, um, he, about five years ago, he made it double wide. So he knocked down the barns and built new barns, but kept the, the old look to him with the slate roofs. And we have 92, there's 92 stalls back there now. And he changed the dirt track to a synthetic track and leveled it. And it was just short of a mile racetrack back there and the to graze them round pens we built a brand new dorm for the help big nice dorm so it's a beautiful place a slice of heaven i would call it just beautiful and quiet and and uh, we trained by ourselves back there other mock tomb horses tom alpatrani or owen hardy or someone else might come back there and train but only the mock tomb horses were allowed because of liability and insurance issues but it was brand new and it was just a, a great place to work every day we felt blessed and honored to be there you know i've heard from different trainers different things about training on synthetic and running on dirt did you find that to be um difficult to to, to get a horse fit on synthetic to run on dirt or or the opposite yeah, it was difficult. I did not like it. Um, even like three years ago, I'd said to the to the powers to be that maybe we change it to dirt because I, I I don't run on synthetic tracks, so I didn't like training on it and then switching to dirt and turf. But it did handle the rain great, and so if the other tracks were sloppy, it was not, and we were able to train on. But I, th I think that we did great off of training on it with our turf horses mostly. And uh, so it, it did help us there and we didn't have any soundness issues. It was pretty nice to train there with soundness wise too, but um, I would probably prefer dirt and stay on dirt. And, and, um, and I guess, did you go to the Oklahoma to train ho horses on the turf or did you always just train your horses at green tree? No, we would go to, as soon as the main track opened, we would go to the main track, especially because of the starting gate and the two-year-olds, and we wanted to get them used to the starting gate there and the, and the dirt. And So we trained almost all of them there, except we would have one set of turf horses or horses that we thought needed to train the wrong way, and we would train them the wrong way and or train them on that track because they did better. But we went to Oklahoma for the turf, and we went to Oklahoma for the dirt. And one time, speaking of uh, Richard DePass, he had Louise Saez's book, and, and I took a horse over there to work on the turf. 
and uh, I nominated him to the stake. I think it was a PG Johnson, and uh, he worked unbelievable. And uh, I told Richard, we're going to run in the stake. He said, he's a maiden. I said, I know, but he, I want to run on the turf, and it's the only way we're going to get to the Breeders' Cup is if we do this. And so he said, well, I gave that call out. I said, okay, no problem. I'll get somebody else. It was um, sold that, and he ended up winning the stake as a maiden, and he got into the Breeders' Cup because of the point system back then. But he, he gave the call away because he didn't think we would run a maiden in a, in a stake. <laughs> That's funny. I, I actually uh, sold that was one of my long strings of Kentucky Derby uh, of uh, horses that I picked that, uh, that in the Derby. I, I liked him that year. I thought I thought he had an yeah. excuse, um, you know, in the Florida Derby. And I, I loved his fountain of youth. And and uh, and you just think ultimately he was just a turf horse. Yes, I think so. Correct. Yeah. I think the one horse that I thought had a good chance to win the Derby was Cairo Prince, and he was injured like three weeks before the Kentucky Derby. And I thought he was had a big chance to win it. When you um, when you retired, obviously a lot of your horses, you know, went to different places. Some went to your uh, your old assistant Joe Lee. Some went to. Um, to, to Todd now when you when you still when you watch those horses run do you, do you did you try to disconnect yourself from it did you feel like you needed to or when when they're running do you feel like you're kind of watching your kids out there yes I, I root for them and I had I have and have had a special relationship with Sheikh Hamdan bin Rashid Al Maktoum from Shadwell he's a wonderful man and he you know he helped changed my life probably over the years working with the Maktoum family. So I always pulled for Shadwell and Godolphin. And uh, I know, you know, still in touch with Jimmy Bell and Dan Pride and Rick Nichols from Shadwell. And Todd has several of them. So I, um, I'm always pulling for, for them, and it's easy for me to pull for them. Kieran, you've been in this game for a long time, and one of the questions I always try to ask people is, is you know, obviously I, I'm not one of those doom and gloom types. I love the game, and I'm I'm happy and proud to be involved. Um, but I think there's no secret that there's obviously some things that we can do better, some things that we have to, uh, you know, kind of improve upon, just like with the NFL. They make changes, and the NBA makes changes, and, and you know, hockey and all these professional sports. And I worry sometimes we don't – we don't uh, adjust enough. I feel like we kind of get stuck in that. Uh, well, it's how we always done it, so that's how we'll do it. What are, What are some things that maybe stick out to you that uh, that you're pretty passionate about? You You would like to see adjusted or changed or modernized as far as our game in order to kind of help it help it grow. You, you know, you, like I said, you've been you've been involved for some time and and on multiple sides of the game. Um, I've you know obviously being involved as as a player from time to time and trainer and, and also an agent what are some of the changes you you'd like to see in our game to help it continue to grow well probably we need another 30 minutes to go over but um i i feel like the betting end of it is difficult to attract new betters it's so difficult to explain to people that you know you go to a casino and and you they take you know about 80 or say 60 cents on the dollar from the slot machines and all and we're giving you know it all back basically 80 percent back to the betters and you have some friends in town 
work on Wall Street. And it's hard to explain to them how to bet exactus, pick threes, pick fours. You feel like I wish we were able to get that across to people better, the betting end of things. And then on the horse front, the the coast-to-coast laws and regulations should be coast-to-coast similar, whether it's shoe rules, gate rules, med rules, all the above. I mean, I, I just Sunday, I heard something that I never heard before, and I was trying to say, what the heck was that? As a jock agent, I was on a conference call, and we were entering for California, San Anita opening day, and one trainer said, put an alternate jockey on. And I said, what the heck did that mean? And so I found out after the draw, I said, what was that? Referring to just an alternate jockey. They like pulled out a a jockey's name out of a hat and it's a stake race. And the trainer said that he might, there might be a a scratch in the race and he would prefer one of the riders that's in the race. And so he puts an alternate jockey on and then changes it. And I'd never heard of that, but I think, coast-to-coast rules for licensing and medication and and racing would be very helpful instead of having to worry about different rules every state. Yeah, I would imagine that, you know, I've heard from different trainers that, you know, we always think, well, why don't you just ship them out to California and run them there? And it's a little bit more complicated than that with with the rules and and you can do this there, but you can't do that here and and so on and so forth. Um, Yes. From a from a uh from the gambling standpoint what 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 have you always i mean how have you tried to explain it to your to your friends on wall street because i have the same issue i like you know you have these i've just tried to simplify it and make them fall in love with it and if just show them the tip of the iceberg and if if they see the tip then maybe they'll get interested in in in, in finding out more but i think it's a mistake because like you said it is a complicated game you don't want to give them too much it, it can kind of deter them Yes, uh, my son is is has been great with his friends, and he's brought some new guys to to the game and talking about ragas and sheets and the thorough manager and giving them more information. And then some of them just like when dad tells them. I tell my son that you know to bet the three and the six, and it works out. So um, it, it's fun that part of it. I have a, a friend that's a pretty big better that gives me some information and I'll pass it on to him sometimes. And, and, it, and he brings them in and they, they love it. And, and he's had good success betting and explaining to them, but it's hard to figure, you know, to, to let people learn. I, I was kidding that one year in New York that we hadn't had a triple crown winner in a long time. I said, if you went to OTB, we did have a triple crown because they don't know the horse's name or anything. They just knew number eight won the Derby, the Preakness, and the Belmont. And that was Jazzle's year. And so the, at the OTB shop, there was a triple crown, number eight, eight, and eight. But <laughs> um, so, you know, when I say these guys to go to the OTB, that's what they do because it's just a couple days a year they go for the Breeders' Cup or the Derby. And there's letters and numbers, and it just gets complicated. I try and tell them to, to use a couple of horses to in the exact uh, underneath. And it's hard to explain it to them, and it's just tough. You know, it's just tough. I wish we could do better. 
that was that was kind of a little uh, a little bit of a triple crown for you. I mean, in a certain way, in a roundabout way, right? Dynaformer with Barbaro, and then Bernardini, obviously, with your connections uh, to the Mocktoon family, and then Jazzle. You so you kind of won the triple crown yeah. here. <laughs> yes, right. I was lucky. Speaking of Bernardini, I was lucky that I kept my job with the Mocktoons, beating him in the classic with Invasor. Because <laughs> Bernardini was worth so much more as a stallion, right? What? Yeah. What? Uh, how? You know, and obviously Tom does a great job, but since you know, I've, you know, I've, you had the, the the closest relationship. How, how did a horse like Bernardini end up? How did you guys figure out who got who and which horses, and, and how did that unfold? It, it was always done by um, racing manager Jimmy Bell, Dan Pride, or someone else. Simon Christopher back in the day. Same with Chad. Well, now they have horses with Chad and Todd and Danny Pites and other people. So it's it goes back to the Rick Nichols is in charge with Shadwell and Dan Pride and Jimmy Bell are with Godolphin. So they split them up long before you know we get them. They they decide this will go here for I don't know what reasons, but um, Bernardini was with Tom and he did a great job with him. Did you know that? Uh, did you know pretty early that that he was going to be a good one? Was the was the word out on on Bernardini? Yes, it was. Um, actually, told Jerry Bailey, I think that he had a horse that he was going to have him ride that would keep him from retiring because he's threatened to retire. And Bailey rode him, I think, finished fourth in a maiden race, and said, huh, "This isn't the horse who's going to keep me from retiring." <laughs> And he went on from there to be a very good old. All right, the, the the last couple of things I wanted to to to, uh, to talk with you about is is just you know you mentioned your your family and and uh, and you you mentioned your wife Letty and you you met her on the backside at at Churchill, and I, I heard you had to, yeah. to work heard you had to work pretty hard. Yeah, she stood me up the first time I asked her to go out to the movies and dinner, but. Um, we were in the same barn and, uh, we ended up starting to date and, uh, she was working for her father. Uh, and, and then we went on and got married. We both worked, we both went to Saratoga in 1983 working for Mark Cassie. And I was, uh, like a foreman assistant and she was a hot walker helper. We had three horses and uh, during that time, Tom Alfatrani worked for Mark Cassie and Steve Bass, who's an agent for Julian La Peru. So that's a long time ago. But yes, we, we she stood me up and then we ended up getting married in uh, November 1983. So we've been together for a long time. I'm blessed to have her and my kids in my life. You were also fortunate enough, uh, I think you're fortunate enough, to work with your brother Neil a majority of your career. How, how important was Neil to the operation? Yeah, very important. Him and his wife Trish were at Green Tree and then Florida in the winter, but they were very valuable. And it's nice when you have a brother you know is not trying to take advantage of you in any way, shape, or form. He's a great horseman and did a great job, and he was involved with all the big horses because the mock tombs and green tree, they were there. So frosted and in the sword, 
jazz and all the rest, but he, he, I speak to him every day still, and uh, he's going to go to Louisville and maybe work for our brother, Tony, at golf headquarters just to take a little break from the horses for a little while. Now, in your, um, in your, in your time when you, when you were at Dubai, did, when was the last time, when was the last time you, you were at in Dubai? When was the last time you went? I went there for Frosted's World Cup. 2016 was that. Do you envision ever just like going there for vacation again? Or is it just, is it just too much of a, of a hassle? It's just too far and too much, too much to deal with. Or do you, do you envision ever getting back over there just to kind of hang out and, and enjoy the city, uh, not working? It's a, it, um, possibly yes, possible, but it's just so far to go and they're eight hours ahead and it's, uh, to go for a week or two, it's kind of very difficult on your body and your, your clock in your head. So it's tough. I wouldn't probably just go for a short time and I probably won't, um, again, but I love it and have good feelings and Aaron would probably want to go with me if I went. She loves it all the time. And, uh, Ryan, my son too, but it's just, it's a long way to go for a vacation and, but it's a great place with great memories and, and it's growing so much. It's crazy how different it is. Well, Karen, as a, as a fan of the game, as a horse player, I, I, you know, I want to, I think I speak for a lot of people when I say we appreciate, uh, your involvement in this game as a, as a trainer and some of the great memories you provided for all of us as fans and as betters with, with your, uh, well-trained horses and, and, uh, some really great moments. That frosted moment is, is one that just really sticks out to me. I just, he was always such a cool horse and he's kind of my poster child for what happens when you let a good three-year-old turn into a four-year-old him gun runner, I think are, are two really, really uh, strong examples of that. And I understand the business and I would never knock anyone for making the best business decisions that they have to make. But the performances that we saw from gun runner and frosted really, really kind of illustrate that uh, these guys have a lot more to offer guys and gals have a lot more to offer us uh, as they continue to get older. Yes, that's true, and it's it's great that you can run some older horses. And and I just want to say to you, and been in the game a long time, I love your your attitude and your thought process on handicapping. Not everybody does the same thing, which is great. You get a little different view of things, and you do a great job. And it's fun to listen to you on TV. Well, I appreciate it. I, I, that that means a lot. I, you know, it's, I, I've always tell people the, the the compliments are always nice, no matter who they come from. Um, but the the when they come from people that have dedicated their lives to this game, it it uh, it uh, it sinks a little bit deeper. So I, I really appreciate that, and we look forward to 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 seeing you uh, kind of have your your next success in, in racing with Louis Saez, and excited to see you uh, you guys continue to rock and roll. And, and this weekend's going to be fun with Maximum Security and. Spielberg and, and and a handful of others. So we wish you the best of luck, and and I'm definitely going to get you for Cart Talk next year. And when things kind of get a little Great. bit more normal in the world, hopefully we'll uh, we'll be able to be running around back there like normal. And and uh, I envision maybe a, a part two of this at some point. But I wanted to thank you so much for taking the time. I I know you're busy, got a lot going on. So uh, I really appreciate it. That's great, and maybe I can win my Derby through Louis Saez next time instead of never winning the derby i'm going to try and win it as a jock's agent now 
Angel will tell you that it feels just the same. <laughs> yeah. He's, uh, it's great. It would feel great. Well, we'll be rooting for you. We appreciate it. Thanks, Karen. Okay. Thank you, Jonathan. We'll talk. Wow, that was awesome. I mean, look, if I had a friend who was in Dubai with me and he got arrested, I would help him get out of jail with my hookup. But I could also guarantee you that I would, like, yeah, and I would do something, like, a little bit more fun than that. Like, hey, can we shut down this road? I need to go to the grocery store. You know, something. I would I would do something at least a little bit annoying. But Kieran, obviously, is a classier man than I am. But, look, I, look, I talked a whole lot at the beginning. And so uh, there's no reason to carry on now. I'm glad you guys are back. I hope you're glad that we are back. Um, what's going on? Fox this weekend. Uh, I'm on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Um, and uh, I think Santa Anita's got some big races, big races in, uh, in New York as well. And then, man, it's just like I feel like we're right around the corner from the Breeders' Cup. And uh, if you're playing the Breeders' Cup betting challenge, uh, reach out to Jim Goodman. I talked to him yesterday. They're, they're doing some things to, to, to kind of accommodate and to help uh, Breeders' Cup betting challenge players. Um, I think you can maybe think you can phone in if you're from Texas or from Canada, like I am. And, 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 uh, so, so reach out to Jim and if I'm, if that's not true, I'm sorry, but I think it is, I think it is true. Um, I think Jim's got a contest too at Keeneland, uh, coming up. So, uh, during the Keeneland meet, so keep an eye out for that as well. And, uh, what else is going on? What else is going on? Uh, Thoroughbred Idea Foundation. We, uh, the wagering, we had a wagering call last night, so we've got some exciting stuff we're trying to get going there, so keep an eye out for that. If you see anything from us over the next week or two, I encourage you uh, to retweet and to promote the, the, the message. I think you'll be behind the message that we have, and, and, uh, and uh, our approach is that it's, it's not just one individual idea, it's all of us combined trying to get something accomplished, so... Uh, keep an eye out for that, and when you see it, you'll know what I'm talking about, and I hope that you'll you'll support that as well. And all right, I'm done. Um, I hope I remember how to do this. Uh, Drew, thanks. If you have any questions, call Drew. Uh, PTF, uh, love you. Uh, Naomi, talk racing to me. Matt, Matty Ice, Matt Bernier Show. Spencer, L, Red Bull Rewind. And then I don't think we have another show yet, but I've been so out of it. Maybe we do. Um, just kidding. Uh, missed you guys. And I look forward to spending some more time with you. We'll see you soon. I need to know everything. Who in the what and the where I need everything. Trust me, I hear what you're saying, but I like it's new what you're telling me. I'm curious, George. I hop in the Porsche. five and a horse. I'm ready for war. I'm coming for throws to turn to a ghost. I need to know everything. Now you'd be surprised at the info you get is by letting them talk. So I'm letting them.